Chances are that though you know the result of his work, you don't immediately know the name Edward Shifflin. Born in Pennsylvania in 1847, Shifflin was just another in a long line of people whose life was changed due to the California gold rush. His father moved to California in 1852 when Ed was five, but then moved up to Oregon the next year when he called his family to join him. Almost immediately after coming west, the prospecting bug bit Ed, and by the age of 10 he was panning along streams, although his first efforts were dampened a bit when he learned about pyrite or fool's gold. From there, his life became consumed with prospecting, as he would travel widely across Oregon, Idaho, Utah, Nevada, California, and Arizona seeking his fortune. But by 1875, still in his late 20s, he returned to Oregon from a disastrous trip to Arizona, completely broke and sick to boot. Borrowing $100 from his father, he set out for Arizona again, though, as one historian put it, at this point he had nothing to show for the last decade-plus of work except for a fanatical belief that he would someday strike it rich. A contemporary who met Shifland in Phoenix in 1876 described him as, quote, the queerest specimen of human flesh I ever saw. He was six feet two inches and had black hair that hung several inches below his shoulders, and a beard that had not been trimmed or combed for so long a time that it was a mass of unkept knots and mats. I have never known a prospector more confident of finding a big mining proposition than he was, yet he told me that he had prospected a good part of 11 years with no results while he had had a frightfully tough time of it. He was then 27, but looked 40." End quote. While doing some odd work near Fort Huachuca in the mountains of the same name in what is today Cochise County, Shifflin was warned against doing any more prospecting around there. But ignoring all advice about keeping safe from marauding Apache, he took off. By September 1877, he had several ore samples, but no one really seemed interested in looking into it. Shifflin had to eventually track his brother down at a mine in Mojave County and cajole him into taking his samples to the company assayer. What that assayer found thrilled him, and he instantly sought a partnership with the Shifflin brothers. Because what Ed had found turned out to be the richest silver strike in Arizona history, pumping out $30 million worth of ore in just seven years. And the place that Shifflin founded would become famous in its own right. A town grew nearby, taking its name from the first claim the prospector staked out. You see, Shifflin remembered those warnings about what he would find in the hills of southern Arizona if he went prospecting. Specifically, when one scout at Fort Huachuca told him that the only thing he would find out there was his tombstone. Thus, a frontier legend, and one of the best examples of the boom-and-bust cycle that was Arizona mining, was born. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 74, Hi-Ho Silver. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we spent our time talking about Governor Anson P.K. Safford, who pushed and pushed to set up an educational framework for the territory of Arizona. 
And while that is fine and dandy for all the civilized folks out there, we have to turn now to what a lot of the rougher people were focusing on at that time, striking it rich somewhere in the desert. Of course, this impulse was hardly new, from Coronado and his search for Cibola to the scandals of Agent Henry Hart at San Carlos just a couple episodes back, mining has always drawn people to Arizona. But in the 1870s, we start to see a change in that mining. Up to this point, we've been talking mainly about gold mining, and placer mining at that. Remember that placer mining is basically mining for gold in streams and alluvial beds where nature, in the form of runoff from rivers or rain, had already separated the ore from the rock. Panning for gold is an example of placer mining, and it was happening all over the place. But as the 1870s dawned, the easily accessible placer gold, and please note the air quotes around easily, was starting to dry up, and it was time to turn to a new source of revenue and way of getting it. Enter Silver and the Hard Rock Miner. Silver had been known to exist in the territory for some time. The Spanish explorers Espejo and Farfan in the 1500s had reported rich veins near modern Jerome, but it had always been harder to remove from the rock than gold, and was worth one-sixteenth gold's value. However, there was more of it, and as it turns out, way more of it. So between 1870 and 1880, silver was king in Arizona. Miners from the gold fields in Nevada descended on Prescott, and soon claims were being staked across the greater central portion of the territory, where various geological forces had brought relatively close to the surface veins in the Hualapai, Bradshaw, and Mazatal Mountains, among others. Thus we find the Tiger load in the Bradshaws near Prescott in January 1871, with miners striking it rich in places such as Black Canyon, Humbug Creek, Big Bug Creek, and the Agua Fria River. Important mines included the Tip Top and Peck near Prescott, along with the McCracken and Signal Mines in Mojave County. But state historian Thomas Sheridan points out that mining by now was starting to take on an entirely different character. The hard rock mining now required significant investment, more than a lone prospector could usually pull together himself. So, though mining was really taking off, it was no longer the lone prospector finding his rich vein and slowly working it himself. No, now it almost needed to become a corporate affair, with investors and engineers. By 1876, there were more than 11,600 claims filed across the Arizona Territory, which had been significantly helped by the fact that everyone's greatest fear, the Apache, had all been shepherded out of sight. And where there were mines, there were boom towns. These sprawling collections of vagabonds, prospectors, entrepreneurs, visionaries, ruffians, and scofflaws had cropped up at rich strikes since time immemorial. But occasionally, just occasionally, they managed to grow beyond just a place where prospectors ate, slept, and lost money. North of the Gila River, along Pinal Creek, and sandwiched between the Apache and Pinal Ranges, sits the modern town of Globe. Americans had known, or suspected, mineral wealth in the region for years. Indian fighter extraordinaire King Woolsey had reported of rich ore in the region after his punitive expeditions against the Apaches in the mid-1860s, which we covered back in episode 52. 
Searching back in my transcripts to episode 25, we find that Francois Aubrey also reported natives using golden bullets while skimming along the Mogollon Rim back in the 1850s. But state historian Marshall Trimble relates that there were tales of natives who used silver, not gold, bullets from the area. I personally like his version a little better, mainly because now I want to create a sci-fi series about a band of Apache who dealt with Americans by day and hunted werewolves by night. If any Hollywood producers are listening out there, let's talk. Anyway, by 1870, Camp Pinal had been established 13 miles west of where Globe now stands, which provided some valuable protection from the Apache, who were just a couple years away from their virtual incarceration at San Carlos. Prospectors made it into Globe itself in 1873, and two years later had formed a mining district. Now, the name of the community has several origin stories, all relating back to these miners. One telling is that a rich chunk of silver was found with striations that looked like continents traced out across the impressive nugget. Another is that a nearly round boulder of silver was pulled from the earth. However it happened, Globe, originally Globe City, sprung up. But this new settlement was almost exactly the definition of nowhere. The nearest railroad line ended 120 miles away, and goods had to be shipped in from Silver City, New Mexico, which was 150 miles away. This was alleviated somewhat when the nearby, please notice again the air quotes, town of Florence got going in the mid-1870s, but it was still a good six days journey through canyons to get there. Globe's silver heyday only lasted four years. Fortunately, it happened to be located over some pretty sweet copper deposits that kept the town going in the last couple decades of the 19th century and well into the 20th, but that's a story for another time. Meanwhile, 28 miles to the northeast of Globe was the now ghost town of McMillanville, named after prospector Charlie McMillan. The story goes that in 1876, McMillan and a business partner had spent a night out on the town while in Globe, before heading out to prospect the next morning. They got only part way to their destination before McMillan, nursing a huge hangover, asked to pull over to sleep it off some more. While he was snoozing, his partner started swinging his pick just for fun, but unexpectedly hit an outcropping of nearly pure silver. As you can imagine, McMillan quickly woke up and the two staked a claim on this spot, which they christened the Stonewall Jackson Mine. It was soon discovered that the outcropping of silver ran a full 10 miles, and the settlement of McMillanville was up and going within a year. By 1880, it had a 20-stamp mill and a population of 1,500. The sad coda to this story is that McMillan and his partner sold their mine prematurely in 1877. Their successor made $2 million, while McMillan drunk himself to death within months and his partner lost all his money in the stock market and had to earn money by washing dishes and globe. McMillanville would not even last the decade after the silver gave out, and everyone moved on to greener pastures. Just a hop, skip, and a jump to the west of globe, we have another fabulous silver strike at a place that thinks a lot of itself, namely the town of Superior. Silver was discovered in the area by accident when General George Stoneman, who was forced from his post by Safford and others, but would go on to be the governor of California, had his men building a military road. 
The common story goes that one of the men, named Sullivan, came across chunks of silver which he showed to some friends. However, his enlistment then ended and he up and vanished. Others would join the hunt for the source of Sullivan's silver, and in 1875 they struck upon the fabulously rich Silver King Mine. The story further goes that years later, an old man wandered into the mine office and announced himself as none other than Sullivan. He had apparently gone back to California to work up enough capital to return and claim the mine for himself, but had run into nothing but bad luck. The owner of the mine took pity on this old man, and whether he was Sullivan or not, he was either given a pension or a job, depending on whose version you are listening to. The Silver King, which according to Trimble produced $6 million in silver, was the fabled mother load. The owner of a newspaper in Superior later recalled that the foreman would wrap a string of silver wire several feet long around his sombrero to transport it from the mine to the mill. Silver dollars were made and were actually given away as souvenirs, and it was said that just the dust on the road between the mine and the mill would net someone $5 a ton in silver. Next to the Silver King, and on the site of modern-day Superior, another mine was opened during the mid-1870s. It wasn't as rich as the Silver King, so it was cleverly named the Silver Queen. Though it failed to live up to its investors' expectations, it would actually be the Silver Queen that saved the town after the silver market faltered in the late 1800s. Because an incredibly rich load of copper was found under the silver cap, and eventually the mine, which was incorporated into the magma mine, made its investors insanely wealthy. Though it wouldn't really be until the early 1900s or so that copper became king in Arizona, some were already starting to cash in on that particular metal. In the extreme southeastern White Mountains, two brothers set up shop in what became Clifton and Morency, which is still mining country to this day. The brothers eventually sold to Charles Linzinski and E.M. Pierce, who brought in a hundred men and $75,000 worth of equipment to begin extracting the rich ore. Even further south, in the area known to Mexicans as Mule Pass, Gold, silver, and, importantly, copper would be struck again. A soldier named Jack Dunn, while looking for water during a pursuit of some Apache, discovered rich ore samples in the area known as Castle Rock. Dunn would show these to a man named George Warren, a rough-and-tumble prospector who had had a hard life, which showed evidently in his drinking and gambling. The soldier and others decided to grubstake Warren, which means they paid him money for him to file the claims and then work the mine. But here's where things take a twist. Warren, who was seemingly constitutionally incapable of avoiding saloons, went into one and quickly lost all his money. However, he did tell everyone in the saloon his business, so he quickly found more grubstaking money, just from different business partners. Dunn and his friends never got their cut of the action. Of course, Warren didn't enjoy his mining for too long. A couple years after the discovery of ore in the area, Warren placed another bad bet. For reasons that only make sense when you are three sheets to the wind, he bet that he could win a foot race against a man riding a horse. When the inevitable happened, Warren lost his claims to mining a certain spot of land, 
which eventually became the fabulously wealthy Copper Queen Mine. Despite being memorialized today as the father of the camp for the town of Bisbee and the namesake for one of its districts, Warren died in poverty. Though I did mention back in episode 48 that the miner depicted on the Great Seal of the state of Arizona is actually based on a likeness of Warren that was hanging in a Bisbee bank. I could go on and on about mining towns that sprung up like weeds out there, but the last one we really need to focus on is the one we started today with. Tombstone. Shifflin and his associates had struck something grand along the San Pedro River. His lucky cuss mine had veins so rich that he could sink his pickhead up to its handle in an outcropping of rock and impress half dollars in the near pure silver he found. One of his backers, a professional assayer, said it was the best ore samples he had ever seen. And then, a week later, Shifflin found an even richer mine, the Tough Nut. And finally, there was the Contention Mine, so named because one business partner found it and failed to immediately notify the rest, though the standing agreement was to split things evenly. Shifflin would eventually sell his interest in Tombstone for maybe upwards of $60,000, though the mines there would produce the equivalent of between $230 and $350 million today. Always a restless spirit, Ed Shifflin had actually been mining in New Mexico and Colorado while still owning his mines near Tombstone, mainly because he disliked leading men. After selling off his interest in Arizona, he bounced around Oregon and California, almost took a trip to Africa before business matters intervened, was in Arizona again shortly, and then headed north to Alaska to prospect. Finding the cold, snowy north to, well, cold and snowy, Shifflin returned to the southwest. The last decade or so of his life isn't clearly documented, but he eventually wound up in Oregon prospecting, because that's all he seemed to want to do with his life. In 1897, when he didn't turn up as usual to gather supplies, someone went to check on him and found him dead, most likely from a heart attack, just a few steps away from his gold pan. He was originally interred in a crude wooden box in Oregon, but his will made it clear that he wished to be buried on top of a hill near Tombstone. This was eventually accomplished, and visitors can still find the grave of Ed Shifflin, marked by a 25-foot conical monument on top of a hill roughly two miles northeast of Tombstone. It's part of the Tombstone Courthouse State Park, so add it to your to-do list the next time you're in the town too tough to die. We'll get more into Tombstone itself in coming episodes, especially due to a certain gunfight that continues to capture the popular imagination to this day. But one last thing I want to mention for now is that Tombstone was just the opportunity that Governor Anson P.K. Safford had been looking for. Declining to run again after his third term, Safford joined with some men to form the Tombstone Gold and Silver Milling and Mining Company. Safford would spend time back east rounding up investors for the company, though he would eventually sell his shares for something along the lines of $140,000 in the mid-1880s. That was probably a good thing too, given that Tombstone's boom fell apart right around 1886, but we'll get to that eventually. Now, stories of men finding fabulous riches are one thing, but we should keep in mind it wasn't like that for most people. Mining, as you may suspect, or even know, 
is hard, dirty work. Though they were paid $4 a day for a 10-hour shift, considered quite a good salary at the time, it was dangerous and backbreaking. According to state historian Thomas Sheridan, miners would descend into the earth in bone-rattling elevators that sometimes dropped 800 feet per minute. Then they had to wedge candles into the tunnel walls and hammer out blasting holes in the rock in two-man teams. And that meant one man swung a giant sledgehammer while the other, with the better nerves of the pair, I suspect, turned the handheld drill. Then the blasting charges themselves were paper cartridges filled with dynamite that were very gingerly placed into those holes. I probably don't have to say this, but accidents could easily and did happen under such circumstances. And up on the surface, things were better, but not by much. Working in a giant mule and water-powered stamp mill meant exhausting work around machines that could crush a man. One miner recalled that at the end of his first day of shoveling ore into the mill, he couldn't unclench his hands. And if you worked in the furnace, that just meant you were exposed to dangerous amounts of lead, arsenic, and mercury, all of which were used in the process of refining silver. Sheridan passes along the anecdote that many furnace workers slept at night with a rope looped around their neck and legs to keep from twitching. Last but not least, let's not forget that frontier towns weren't known for their law and order. All the usual vices were there to tempt miners out of their money, including red light districts, saloons, and gambling halls. The game of choice in these days was not poker, as you'll usually see in movies and TV, but rather a game called Pharaoh. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of what Pharaoh actually is, but it was played fast and had easy-to-memorize rules, so it was incredibly popular. However, it was almost always rigged in favor of the house. A crooked Pharaoh dealer was nothing new, though it's not like the players didn't try to cheat either. I can't find this backed up anywhere, so don't quote me on it, but I think I once read that Pharaoh is not even allowed in modern-day casinos because of the propensity for cheating and players losing everything. But Sheridan also points out another dark side to mining in Arizona. The inherent racism that dominated it. Places like Prescott and Tombstone were most definitely American towns, with all others being pushed to the margins. As early as 1863, a resolution was passed in a mining district near Prescott that explicitly forbade, quote, Asiatics and Sonorans from working this district, end quote. Other Americans obviously thought this was a great idea because similar laws were passed in Wickenburg and across districts in the Bradshaw Mountains. Just to show how unwelcome Mexicans could be, we have a story from 1880 when a man named Jesus Carrillo entered a saloon near Tip Top to order a drink, but found himself thrown out by the bartender, then set upon by a group of white miners who looped rope around his neck and literally dragged him out of town. Down in Tombstone, mining continued to be an all-white affair, as experienced Cornish miners were brought in to pull ore out alongside their American cousins, while Mexicans were reduced to jobs on the periphery, such as being teamsters or finding wood to fuel the machinery. Just as marginalized were some of the women of the time. 
Sheridan shared the brief story of Mary Sawyer, who gained notoriety in the mining camps by dressing in men's clothes, working her claim with vigor, and drinking and cussing just as well as any of the fellas. She was eventually deemed insane by a Yavapai County judge in 1877 and sent to an asylum. She would actually die in Phoenix's asylum in 1902. But the one group that seemed to suffer again and again at the hands of all these eager miners were, of course, the Amerindians. You may have noticed that nearly every single time this or that tribe was forcefully removed from their native homelands or their reservation was dismantled, it was because someone thought there was something shiny under their feet. You might recall that rumors of good stockland and supposed mineral wealth were two prominent pressures that ultimately undid Cochise's Chiricahua reservation. No less an authority than General Crook commented, quote, Greed and avarice on the part of the whites, in other words, the almighty dollar, is at the bottom of nine-tenths of all our Indian troubles, end quote. And you can see this in some of the stories I've already shared here today. Let's start in the area of Globe, which the Apaches, bewildered at how many white eyes kept digging and digging into the earth, called Beshbagoa, or the Metal Village. We've already mentioned McMillanville to the north, but that mine just happened to border the San Carlos Reservation, which was supposed to have been given to the Apaches, mainly because every other place had been shut down. Apache scouts, such as Mickey Free, were sent to the area to stop miners encroaching on Apache territory, but it did little good. Miners pushed onto the reservation, and the Indian agent, the very much corruptible Henry Hart, managed to have a 12-mile strip taken from the reservation and opened up to mining, mainly because he had business interests there as well. Down in Clifton, where Lisinski and Pierce were starting to earn a profit, seemingly not caring that they were technically on White Mountain Apache Reservation land, in December 1873, so a year after starting their operation, Lisinski petitioned to have the mine separated from the reservation. What followed next was an embarrassing little scandal for everyone involved. The Commissioner of Indian Affairs wrote to White Mountain agent James E. Roberts inquiring about the issue. Instead of directly replying, Roberts went to Tucson to discuss the matter with Governor Safford and the territory's Attorney General. After this meeting, the Attorney General wrote to Lisinski asking for compensation for the trouble and expense of legally separating the mineland from the reservation, if you catch my drift. Lisinski refused to pay the $5,000, roughly $116,000 in today's money, and went to the press with a story about the bribe. Though he denied everything, the Attorney General was sacked by Safford. Roberts got away mostly clean from this whole incident, but like I said back in episode 68, it would be one of the issues leading to his eventual downfall and the consolidation of the White Mountain Apache under Clum's stewardship down in San Carlos. Historian Jay Wagner said it best when he wrote, quote, It is regrettable that during this whole episode involving the reduction of the White Mountain Reservation, the intrusion by the mine developers, the corruption and maneuvering by the politicians, and the agent-military rivalry, there was little consideration given to the rights of the Indians, end quote. But on that note, I want to look at one last aberration when it comes to mining. The Veco mine, or what early state historian James H. McClintock calls, quote, a genuine 
Indian mine. The mine itself, a source of silver and lead, sits roughly 30 miles south of Casa Grande, on land that traditionally belonged to the Odom. In the 1860s and 1870s, there was a man named John D. Walker, who was part Amerindian himself, and really took a shine to the Odom, eventually leading some of their warriors into battle against the Apache as part of the Arizona Volunteers that we spoke about in episode 53. Because of his close ties to the Odom, Walker and another man were eventually shown the location of this mine, which they began to work. Both McClintock and early state historian Thomas Farish say that most of the money was invested back into the Odom community, with McClintock going as far as saying that Walker only hired Odom workers. Another source said that he also banned alcohol, which, if true, does really make this mine stand out from every other one we've talked about today. Unfortunately, Walker was deemed legally insane later in life, most likely at the prodding of his brother Lucian in a bid to gain more shares of the profitable mine. Walker's death would also kick off a fierce legal battle for his estate, which eventually grew to include three brothers, four sisters, a woman who claimed she married Walker while acting as his nurse, and a Pima girl who claimed that Walker had lived with her mother and thus was married according to the traditions of her people. It seems that no mine in Arizona is free from a tangled web of one kind or another. I'm going to leave things here for this week, but I hope you got just a taste of the flurry of mining activity happening across the territory at this point in our story. But before I let you go, I do have a couple of programming notes I want to address. The first is the sad news that there will be no new episode next week, October 24th, as I will be traveling out of state and will be tied up to the point that getting an episode out is impossible. But I will be back the following week with something I hope you will enjoy. Because I came to the sudden realization that when the episode hits in two weeks, it will be October 31st, which means, yep, time for a Halloween episode. I hope you all don't mind too much if I push pause on the main narrative and instead bring a collection of spooky tales from Arizona's long and storied history. There are a few different things I'm thinking of covering, but you best believe there will be stories of hauntings, secret societies, and Arizona's own purported version of Bigfoot. I hope you'll all join me around the virtual campfire for a spine-tingling listen. Until then, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.